It's nothing like starting the year with technical difficulties, right? <laughs> That's, uh, uh, I've, all, I've long been convinced that if Satan is going to disrupt a service, he's going to do it through the soundboard because everybody notices, right? And uh, so we're, we're starting a new series today uh, about new beginnings and vision in the next year and what's coming in the next year. We're calling this series Vision 2020. And uh, today we're beginning by looking at the opportunities that God has laid before us. A few weeks ago, Mandy and I, uh, we don't go to the movies very often, but we went and saw the, the new movie about Mr. Rogers. Uh, good movie. We enjoyed it. Um, and before that, she shared an article that she found with, uh, on the Internet about him written by his wife, Joanne. Uh, after his death, she wrote this article just talking about uh, who she knew him to be, and really the, the bulk of the article uh, talked about how he got his start and, you know, began in television and the show itself, uh, but she gave, began to talk about his character, and, you know, one of the, the questions she always gets is, was he really like that all the time, you know, how he presented himself on the show, and she said, yes, he was consistent. I mean, he, was, he always spoke that softly. Uh, he was very patient. Uh, and very kind. She talked about a few of the characters, the, the characters on the show. Um, one of the characters named after her, Sarah Saturday, her first name was Sarah. Uh, and, and one of the other characters, he used his middle name, Mr. McFeely, uh, was his middle name, I believe. Um, but she said her favorite character on the show was Daniel Tiger. And the reason was because she said that Daniel Tiger reminded her so much of Mr. Rogers, of him. Uh, very kind, very patient, and very generous. And she said, that's just how he was. Everywhere he went, he shared kindness. Uh, what a lot of people don't know, maybe you do, some people don't know, is that, that Mr. Rogers was actually an ordained Presbyterian minister. Uh, he didn't talk about that much. Uh, but his, his life goal, according to her, one of his life goals, she talked about how his faith was actually stronger than hers. He had a list of people that he prayed for every day. He would get up in the morning and pray. He would pray at night. He studied his Bible vigorously. But his life goal was to live out his faith wherever he went. Uh, and that was one of the purposes of his television show, was to live out his faith and to show love and to kindness and to provide a safe place for kids uh, because kids need that. She, she compared his show to, to climbing in her grandmother's lap as a child. It felt safe and she knew she was loved. But his goal was to, to share his faith, to live out his faith. And this is what she said. She said to his family, to the people he worked with, to the audiences, through the characters that he created and the stories that he told, Living out his faith was what mattered most. He spread God's love in everything that he did. And this is the quote that caught my attention. His life was a sermon. His life was a sermon. Well, whether we realize it or not, each and every one of us, our lives are sermons. And so the question I want to ask as we begin this new series is what type of sermon, what is the message of the sermon that, that you and I are preaching with our lives? Individually, what's the message of the sermon that we are preaching to the world as a church through the ministries of this church? What's the message that we are presenting to the lost and lonely who need love, 
who need to know they are important, that they are loved, that they have a Savior who died for them as well? Are we fulfilling the purpose? Are we taking advantage of the opportunities that God has given us to reach those lost and lonely in our world? These are some of the questions that we're going to answer over the next few weeks, three weeks including this in this series called Vision 2020, where we're looking into the future of this church and where we believe God is leading us as a church. You know, the course of history is littered with almost victories. You can look through the history books and see if only this decision had been made or this tactical move had been made, uh, things would have turned out differently for for countries, for people. Uh, The Battle of Gettysburg would have looked a whole lot different if only the Confederate forces had taken uh, the high ground at Little Round Top on the first day when it was available. They waited too late. They weren't able to do it. And, and many believe that changed the course of the entire battle and, and possibly the war. Uh, we look at the Battle of Waterloo. could have easily gone the other way if the French had succeeded in capturing a crossroads at Quatre Bras. I mean, it was a a, a key moment, key decisions, missed opportunities throughout history. A few months ago, I shared with you the story of Ronald Wayne. And some of you were here, and you know that name because you were here. Some of you have never heard of that name. And the reason is because he was actually one of the founding um, uh, members of the group that started the Apple Company. But he got cold feet, and he, he backed out before they went public and missed out on billions of dollars because he wasn't willing to take the risk that the other two guys were. Um, missed opportunities. And, and you and I, we could talk about the opportunities in our lives that we, we should have taken advantage of or couldn't take advantage of. Missed opportunities. And, and history's littered with those. The same thing could be said for the nation of Israel. God did great things in the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel missed a lot of opportunities because of their lack of faith, their unwillingness to trust God, and that's certainly the case in the passage we're going to look at today in Numbers chapter 13. Caleb alluded to it last week, a key moment in the nation of Israel, a very important time in their, their, the lives of, of this, this nation. They had been brought Faithfully, God had brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He had promised them, he had promised Abraham to, to bring them to a land and, and that, that flows with milk and honey. That was the promise that God had given this nation. And they, now as we, we pick up in Numbers 13, I mean, they are on the verge of entering this land. They've been wandering through the wilderness. They've come out of slavery, come this far. They're on the verge And God tells Moses to assign leaders from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to go into the land, to scout out the land, and to simply report back to the people what they had seen. That's it. To go in, to scout, and to report back. Well, in Numbers chapter 13, beginning in verse 25, we read their report. Verse 25, you can follow along with me. At the end of 40 days, they returned from scouting the land. The men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, We went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and there is some of it, here is some of its fruit. However, the people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. 
We also saw the descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites, are living in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, We must go up and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. Why? Because God had promised them this land, and he knew that. The men who had gone up with him responded, We can't go up against the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same to them. Then the whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. You know, we look at this opportunity, and, and, and we can line up where we are as a church family with the nation of Israel. We are in the beginning, the middle of experiencing, I guess, a new era. We are in a new era at this church. Uh, God has placed tremendous opportunities before us. We see the nation of Israel faced with what God had promised them, tremendous opportunities, and what did they do? They chose to back off. They chose not to trust him. Well, we're faced with the same question. We, we're in a new beginning, a new era here. God has already shown us some of what he wants to do. We've seen him do some incredible things, but there's so much more in front of us. So the question becomes, will we possess the land that God is offering us? Will we continue to move forward and take advantage of the opportunities? The nation of Israel, unfortunately, we learn a lesson from them on what not to do. And in this story, we're going to look at uh, the story of grapes, giants, grasshoppers, and God. Four characters in this story that we can learn some valuable lessons from as we attempt to move forward and possess what God has in store for us. We'll look at at these main characters this morning. First, we see the grapes. And grapes represent the fact that God has placed tremendous opportunities in front of us. We have tremendous opportunities. I mean, God gives us opportunities every day to serve him. But as a church, we have tremendous opportunities in front of us that God has given us. The scouts go into the land. They see for themselves the abundant fruitfulness of the land. Uh, A bundle of grapes so large that it takes two men to carry. Uh, They see pomegranates, figs, everything God had promised, they saw. I mean, it was exactly as God had said it would be. And so they have in front of their very own eyes evidence that God is true to his word. For 40 days, they explore this land without any resistance, without encountering any danger at all. They explore this land, and they saw with their own eyes the opportunities that God had given them, was was offering them. You know, there are opportunities in life that you don't want to take advantage of. You know, there are th- some things that, that you're faced, you can do, that, that you'd rather not do. A few years back, we were uh, touring this animal wildlife place in Missouri. 
And uh, it, was, it was one of those places that you expect to see on the news later on where somebody got eaten because that's just kind of how they ran the place. I mean, it just didn't seem like everything was real secure. We had a good time, but, you know, we haven't been back since. And, and, and you know, we figured we survived it. You know, don't, why, why take chances, right? Well, at one point, and, and as we were touring this facility, they had these, these baby alligators. And they offered all of us a chance to hold the baby alligator. One of us took advantage of that opportunity, and one of us was wise enough not to take advantage of that opportunity. I'm not ashamed to say that my wife held the alligator. I did not. I figured that was not an opportunity that I needed to take advantage of in that moment. Uh, She thought different. And we have a picture of her holding an alligator, and she can hold that over my head for the rest of our lives, and I'm good with that because I feel like I made the right choice. There's some opportunities in life that you don't want to take advantage of. Opportunities from God, though, those are opportunities that you always should want to take advantage of. We should always take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us. And we have opportunities in front of us. Let's be specific this morning. What are some of our grapes in this church? Opportunities that God has given and is giving us. Well, one thing, a great location. I mean, just Don't do it right now because I want you to pay attention, but you can sit here and just watch, count the number of cars that drive past our church every day. I mean, the countless number of people. uh, And just in in the the immediate surrounding area, the the people that we have that that God is giving us the opportunity to reach, to share the gospel with, uh, the massive growth in this community. I mean, over even since we've, we've moved here in the past year and a half, the number of people that have moved in, the houses that are being developed, um, incredible opportunity. Growth in this church. We're going to brag on the Lord for just a few minutes, just to kind of give you an idea of what's happening, what God is. If you're new, if maybe you haven't kept track, because honestly I hadn't until I started looking at the numbers, and I was amazed at what God's been doing over the past year. Just in the past year, uh, 2019, we've had 15 families join this church. 15 families in the past year. 34 people have been added to our church family in the past year. 11 baptisms in 2019 alone. And God is blessing this church family. Tremendous opportunities to reach people. Attendance went from an average of 227 in 2018 to 250 in 2019. Our attendance was was raised by that much. Really, in 2018 through up to the summer, it was more like around 200. And though it's not all about numbers, but those numbers represent people, individuals that God has blessed us with who have brought us into this family that we can minister to and that can be a part of this ministry. And God is giving us opportunities to disciple, to reach people with the gospel. Um, you know, we right now we have no debt. That's a great opportunity, an opportunity to take a step of faith in some areas as we grow uh, to meet the needs with different facilities and different ministries. We have a dynamic worship service. Luke and our worship team do a fantastic job every day of leading us to the throne, of worshiping. Um, And and you, the participation of the church family, listen, don't take this for granted. The participation, the worship in this place is incredible. Um, there's a sweet spirit of worship, and that is not the case in every church this Sunday morning. Uh, don't take that for granted. We have a dynamic worship service, great leadership structure. I mean, you know, you let your leaders lead, and I, for one, as one of your leaders, am thankful for that. That's not the case everywhere you go. Um, 
Great children's ministry, youth ministry. You saw some of our youth last week leading worship. Tremendous opportunities. God is blessing us. The, the, the atmosphere in this church is one of excitement. The people are caring, and, and that is another thing that you can't manufacture. You know, Either you have it or you don't. Either the Holy Spirit uh, blesses you, changes hearts, and makes that happen in a church, or you don't have it, and we have a sweet spirit in this place. Tremendous opportunities that God has given us. A loving, caring church. There's no reason why we can't continue to experience new people coming to Christ and becoming a part of this church family. But in order to take advantage of these opportunities, here's something that we need to remember. Opportunities from God are anchored in the promises of God. Opportunities from God are anchored in God's promises. And we can be sure that God's promises are true. Look at God's promise to the nation of Israel, to Abraham in Genesis 17. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you, I will give you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. He's promised them this land that they're on the verge of receiving all of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God had promised them this, and this is what they had been looking forward to for so many years, yet they're on the verge of accepting it, and they're going to reject it. There are promises to us, I mean, to the New Testament church as a whole. Let's look at just two, just a couple. John 14, 12, I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, Jesus says, even greater works. Because I'm going to be with the Father. And he, through his church, is doing wonderful things. I've shared with you some of the things he's doing in this church. Through his body, Jesus does incredible things and gives us the opportunity to be a part of that. Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When we invest in the lives of others... In the kingdom of God, that investment does not return void. I mean, there, there's always a return on that investment. You may not always see the return, but there's always a return when we invest in the kingdom of God, when we serve the Lord, when we participate in his kingdom work. Now, think about this for a moment. Going back to Numbers 13, the goal of the mission, the, the assignment given to the 12 sent on this journey, this, this scouting journey, they were to go in, they were to survey the land, and to report back. Nowhere does Moses tell them to make a decision on whether or not they can possess the land. That was not their assignment. Their assignment was simply to report, to scout and report. They took it upon themselves to decide whether or not they could possess the land. And that was their first mistake. Their first mistake. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Send men, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Send men to scout out the land of Canaan I'm giving to the Israelites. No question. The land I am giving. I'm giving it. Send one man who is a leader from each of their ancestral tribes. God had promised them the land, but evidently this promise... Either they forgot or they didn't think a whole lot of it. They had seen God do incredible things. We've seen God do incredible things in this church. But now it's time to move forward. And his work in the past and his promise for the future was not enough 
for them to take possession of what's ahead of them. So we have to ask, does God's promise mean anything to us? The promises he's given us in his word to use us, to do incredible things through us, if we will trust him and serve him. We need to remember also that God's promises, I mean, all all of these, it's rooted in God's promise, but God's promises are accompanied by proof of God's faithfulness. It's not, I mean, yes, his promise is enough in and of itself, but we have proof of his faithfulness, just as the nation of Israel had proof of God's faithfulness time and time again. I mean, just... I'm not going to read these verses, but, but later, jot these down real quick. In the, in the same chapter, chapter 13, verse 23, verse 26, verse 27, chapter 14, verse 7, proof of God's faithfulness. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, it says, Keep in mind that the Lord your God is the only God. He is a faithful God who keeps his promise and is merciful to thousands of generations of those who love him and obey his commands. God had delivered them from Egypt. He had always been faithful. He had done what he said he was going to do. Now they are on the verge of entering the promised land. They had been to to Canaan and back. The, The spies brought back the evidence that the land was exactly as God had said. God has brought each of us here in this church, in this time, in this place for a specific purpose. And he's laying in front of us opportunities to make an impact for his kingdom. I believe it's like nothing any of us have ever seen. The question is, will we take possession of the land that's in front of us? The opportunities are great, but there are some giants that need to be overcome. And that's number two, giants. The giants represent the fact that opportunities from God are usually accompanied by obstacles that keep us dependent upon him. Obstacles, God allows those for a specific purpose, and that's to keep us dependent upon him. For the 10-man majority that goes into the land, the biggest obstacle is these giants that possess the land, the land like the Nephilim of old. These giants occupy. Uh, I brought a map. I want you to look at the map if you can see it the best you can. And it'll show, it's kind of small, but down towards the bottom, on, uh, on the left, you have the Negev. Off to the left, the immediate left, the, the, the area by the sea, the Jordan Valley, the hill country. All four of those major areas were possessed. I mean, most of the land was possessed by these people. It was occupied, fortified cities, giants, huge individuals, scary. And so, so you, you see the, their report, and you, you can, you can kind of understand their reaction. Who in their right mind could overcome these giants? Who in their right mind could defeat these giants? And if we're honest, we feel that way at times too, don't we? Up against a task that God has called us to, something incredible that he's called us to. And what's our response going to be? Well, let's look at some of our giants. We've looked at the opportunities where God's blessed us. Let's look at some of the giants. Let's be honest. Let's lay it out there, what's in front of us. I mean, with the growth that we've had, with growth comes challenge. There's always, there are always challenges that come with growth. I mean, growing... Connection groups, Sunday school classes means we have to adjust. Some, some classes may end up having to divide up into smaller classes. I mean, there are challenges that come with growth. 
uh, assimilating new people into the church. We're great, glad to have new folks, but then becomes the challenge of getting them plugged into ministry, which means some of us who've been doing things have to let, maybe let go of some things so that new folks can take part in that. The challenge of assimilation, assimilating new people. With growing ministries means you need more people to serve in those ministries. A growing need for volunteers in ministries. That's always a challenge that we have to meet. New people from different backgrounds bringing those folks together under one roof is always a challenge. Unless we remain submitted to the Holy Spirit, uh, there's going to be conflict. And we have to, even, even in the best of circumstances, there's conflict. But in submission, we work through that in a positive way. The challenge of working together, different personalities, different backgrounds, working together for the same purpose. It's a new day in the life of this church. Now, let's all be honest. Listen, I'll stand at the front of the line here. I don't like change. I mean, my wife will be the first to tell you. I've got my little routines that I do, and whenever she's mad at me, she'll mess up one of those routines, and I know she's mad at me because that just messes with my world. I mean, I, I, mean, I am. I'm a creature of habit, and, and most of us are, aren't we? We like things the way we like them, and we get comfortable in our environment. We get comfortable in our routines. Change is hard, and the older you get, the harder it is. It's just the way life is. When you're growing as a church, and if you're moving forward at all, change is inevitable. It's tough, and it's a challenge. It's a giant that we have to face, that we have to be willing to adapt to. And then, of course, with growth, we've talked a little bit about this building needs. The building needs change. We're going to have things going on in the future to meet those needs. Those are challenges. Those are giants. And I'll be honest with you, some of these things I look at and I go, Lord, how in the world are we going to, how's this going to work out? I see where you're leading, but how, how are we going to do this? But God says, hey, if you trust me, I'll be faithful. We have his promises, just like the nation of Israel did. There are giants in this church. There are giants that are, are, are present in just about every 21st century New Testament church. Uh, refusal to commit. Prayerlessness. I mean, we, we need to, to, to be people of prayer. And everything we do needs to be res- the result of hours and hours of prayer. Um, prayerlessness. We live in a my way generation. We're all used to having things our way. Most everybody, I mean, you can, you can we're going to leave here today. Most of us, many of us are going to go to a restaurant and you're going to get your food just like you like it. Pretty quickly. We like it like we like it. We like it immediately. And, and when you get everybody who's used to having their own way in the same room, that can be challenging to reach a consensus, to move forward together. All of these, these are some specific obstacles. But let's look at some general obstacles, all right? General obstacles that, that are present in the church. One obstacle, a misconceived idea can be an obstacle. Misconceived idea. Let me give you some examples. Misconceived idea number one, obstacles are closed doors. That's the way the nation of Israel looked at it. And you've heard, you know, you know, if God closes a door, and sometimes he does now, but closed doors aren't always, doesn't always mean that it's not the right thing. You know, sometimes God allows obstacles in order to display his power so that when you've gone through that closed door or overcome that obstacle, he's the one that gets the glory. Because it couldn't have been me. I could, there was no way I could get around that obstacle. Sometimes God allows those to prove his power. Misconceived idea number two, obstacles are a sign of God's disapproval. That's not always the case. It could be that God's placing an obstacle in your way to slow down a little bit, to wait on him. Maybe it's the right thing at the wrong time. 
The timing's not right. And God's saying, just wait, just slow down a little bit. Trust me, do it in my time. Misconceived idea number three, obstacles are always reasons to refuse to go forward. It's the idea that the path of least resistance or the course of least resistance is the best course. You know, it could be that God's just testing your endurance. He may be placing some obstacles, forcing you to depend on him, testing your endurance. I mean, are you willing to, are you in it for the long haul? Are you willing to trust God to endure to the end so that you can get finished and say like Paul did, I finished the race, I run with endurance. Misconceived idea number four, the biggest is always the baddest. That's not always the case. Think about David and Goliath. You know, these, these guys were facing giants that were, listen, they were big. I mean, these, these were big dudes, scary, powerful. But then you look at stories like David and Goliath. It, it doesn't matter so much the size of the person. It's, it's whether or not it's God's plan or not, and if God's on your side. Misconceived idea number five, faith never contradicts human reason. To that, I ask this question. How reasonable do you think Noah thought it was to build an ark? Faith often contradicts human reason. But we tend to believe, hey, if I can't, think, if I can't figure it out, if it doesn't make sense to me, then God couldn't possibly be causing, calling me to do that. Uh, misconceived idea number six, the majority rules. Now listen, we shouldn't ignore the majority, but this Numbers 13 is there partly to give us a prime example of, of the fact that that's not always the case. Sometimes the majority can miss it completely. Ten of the twelve said no, two of the twelve said yes, and the two were right. Uh, you know, sometimes the majority doesn't. We should never disclude the majority, but the, the bottom line question should always be this. Whenever we're deciding to do something, it's not what I say, it's not what you say, it's what does God say? What is God telling us to do? What has he said in his word? Because we as a church may be doing something that the whole world thinks is crazy, but if God says do it, then we have to do it. What is God telling us to do? Misconceived idea number seven. Man's economy and God's economy are the same. We th- you know, of course, we're going to say, no, we don't believe that, but we tend to think that way. If we can't see it, taste it, taste it touch it, feel it, whatever, then, then, then we can't wrap our minds around it. But our resources are limited to what we can see and count. God's resources are infinite, unlimited. Misconceived idea number eight. And this is one of my favorites. We've always done it this way, so it must be right for now. And listen, we, I just told you, I'm a creature of habit. I'm a guy of routine. But tradition that's based on revelation, tradition based on revelation is good. There are some things that we have done, always have done, and should always do because God has told us to do. We, we celebrated the Lord's Supper few weeks ago that's something that's a tradition that we should always do there's no question about that tradition based on revelation is good but tradition just for the sake of tradition can be a hindrance to fulfilling God's purpose again we have to ask what is God telling us to do what where is he leading what does he want us to do a question that we always need to ask with existing ministries with the ministries that we're starting in the future there are two things we need to ask Number one, 
what is the biblical purpose of this ministry? If there's no biblical purpose, then there's really no point in doing it. And number two, how does doing this help us fulfill the mission that God has given us as a church? Those two questions are vital when we're determining what to do and what not to do. Misconceived ideas can be obstacles. Another obstacle, misled followers can also be an obstacle. A misled follower. Several years ago, Mandy and I went to the Purpose Driven Conference, Rick Warren, and he shared a story about some of his neighbors in the late 70s who they, they were just getting started in California and, and they were talking to him about this new, this, this church that they had become a part of and they were excited about and they, they were really trying to, to get him to, to be a part of that and they talked about how they were getting ready to move to Guyana. Well, this, these neighbors of his did just that. They packed up with their family along with several others and moved to Guyana, and of course, you know the story, 1978, the Jonestown Massacre. 900 people, 303 of which were children, mass suicide. All of these misled followers took their own lives. Many of them took their own lives because they were misled. They were sincere, but they were misled. They didn't have the truth. 1997, Marshall Applewhite, 38, he and 38 of his misled followers thought that there was an alien spaceship following the Hellbop Comet to take them to heaven. And what they had to do to get there was to take their own lives so that they could leave the vessels of their bodies and join this spaceship. People that were, they were sincere. I mean, you can go back and listen to their testimonies. I mean, these decent people, sincere, wanted to make a difference in the world, wanted to do good, but they were misled. Sincere, but wrong. Wrong because they had been led, misled by someone that they trusted. Misled followers listen to people rather than God. They're ignorant of the word. And I've said this, and I'm always going to say this. Whatever I share on Sunday morning, I hope, I hope with, with every bit of fiber of who I am that you are taking what I'm saying and comparing it to the word of God. Because it doesn't matter what Alan thinks. It doesn't matter what I say, it matters what God says. And if I ever lead in a direction that's contrary to God's word, then I'm wrong. And I need to be held accountable for that. My desire is to communicate to you where God is leading me in this church. Because if we don't follow the word of God, then we will be misled followers. It doesn't matter how sincere we are. The end will be destruction, misled followers, good intentions but wrong information. A misplaced trust is another obstacle, can be another obstacle. Uh, You know, have you ever been let down by somebody that you trusted in? Anybody? I have. We all have, right? That's happened. Psalm 37, 4 and 5 tells us, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. We don't have to worry about being let down by God. His promises are sure. And Timmy, I've asked Timmy to come help me. Come help me, Tim. I want to show you about the promises of God, okay? Uh, God, I shared with you a few of God's promises to the nation of Israel, uh, specifically about the land, God's promises to us. Now, I've got a few pieces of paper, and this paper represents our promises, promises that you and I make, all right? We'll take one sheet of paper. How easily 
Can our promises be broken? Timmy, I want you to tear that piece of paper in half. Timmy's grown a lot this year. He's got grown several inches, pretty strong. He's, he can't take me yet, but he's, he's pretty strong. I've still got my bluff in. Um, but you tore that piece of paper pretty easy, right? All right, let's, here, I don't know how many are here. Several pieces of paper. Try that. See if you can tear that. It's a little harder, but you can still do it, right? All right. There are, in the Bible, I've Googled this, and, you know, I don't know how accurate it is. Bible.com, I believe, so you hope it's pretty accurate. There are about, if it's on the Internet, it has to be true, right? <laughs> Didn't I hear that somewhere? The, there are over 7,000 promises from God to us in the Bible. Over seven, I didn't count them. I'm going, I'm trusting the Internet there, but there are 7,000 promises. Now think about that for a minute. 7,000. Now, these pieces of paper represent our promises. I've got a couple of reams of paper here. There's 500 sheets of paper in each ream. So there's 1,000 sheets of paper here. 7,000 promises God has made us. Our promises are pretty flimsy, but even some of our promises aren't broken, right? I mean, even we're honest from time to time. So let's just say 1,000 sheets of paper. Tear those in half for me there, Tim. Can you, can you do it? No luck? All right, well, hey, listen, I'll go easy on you. Try 500. See if you can tear that in half. Try. Try hard. No, no, no chance, right? Yeah, I, there, there's nobody here. Don't feel too bad. There's nobody here that could do this. Thanks, Tim. You can have a seat, buddy. Appreciate you. There, there's nobody in this building that could tear one of these, right? Y'all remember the power team used to tear phone books? What's a phone book, right? We don't know what phone books are anymore. <laughs> Unless you're like the power team or something. There's no way you're tearing this. But even our promises, as good as they are, they're going to get broken from time to time. And here's the thing. It, you know, there are 7,000 promises in the Bible, but the volume really doesn't matter. It's who's making the promise, right? It doesn't matter how many promises you make. Just one of God's promise we can count on. God's promises cannot be broken. You can't tear this ream of paper. Let me tell you, you cannot break God's promises. No one can because he is always faithful and true. You can always trust the Lord. So where are you putting your trust? Are you putting it in others? Are you putting it in men? Are you putting it in the Lord? Because if you put it in men, you're going to be let down eventually. How many of you here, let's be honest, all right? How many of you here have ever broken a promise? I'm raising my hand. If you put your faith in men, eventually you're going to get let down. But if you put your trust in the Lord, you will never be let down. There are grapes, opportunities in front of us. There are giants, obstacles in front of us. But there's another group that we need to look out for, and these are the grasshoppers. Grasshoppers represent the fact that when God is up to something, those of little faith will be persistent objectors. These ten men, these guys were problem-oriented thinkers. Problem-oriented thinkers. And here's the deal. Problem-oriented thinkers, problem-oriented thinkers act like grasshoppers up against giants. We look like grasshoppers. Verse 33, we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Hey, if I look at myself that way, others are going to look at me that way too. And that's what happened. We're grasshoppers. You know, in comparison to these these giants they, they these scouts felt like grasshoppers grasshoppers were the smallest edible creatures in the ancient world and yes i did say edible it would be like me calling you a shrimp modern day language they, they were shrimp we, do, we look like shrimp compared to these giants 
They looked at themselves that way, so that's what they became. These guys are what we would call glasses half-empty people. Looking at the same situation as somebody else, but see the glass half-empty instead of half-full. They were problem-oriented thinkers. Then there's Joshua and Caleb, the other two. Joshua and Caleb were what I call power-oriented thinkers. Not their own power, but they were power-oriented thinkers. They saw the exact same circumstances as the other ten, but they drew different conclusions from those circumstances. The ten said, no way, we're grasshoppers. Joshua and Caleb said, how can we not possess the land? God's promised us this land. Power-oriented thinkers. And here's the thing about power-oriented thinkers. They see themselves as God's children with God's power within them. Not their power, the power of God. Power-oriented thinkers. Look at verse 30. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of the land, for surely we'll overcome it. You know, Caleb's not disagreeing that the people were giants. That's not the question. There's no argument there. These people are giants. His disagreement, it's not that these were, the the disagreement is on how they viewed the promises of God. It didn't matter the size of the people. It mattered the power of God is what mattered. It's not about how big the obstacle is. It's whether or not God's called you to go through that obstacle. And that's the way Joshua and Caleb looked at it. The issue was the, the presence or the absence of God's favor. Doesn't matter what the people look like. Doesn't matter what the task is. Doesn't matter what the obstacle is. Do we have God's favor or don't we? Well, that issue's already been settled, hasn't it? I mean, God, God promised time and time again and reiterated that promise in verses 1 and 2 that this is the land I'm going to give you. The, the, the issue should have been settled. The promise had been made, and we, we've already established they, we can depend on the promises of God, and they could too. If the Lord was pleased with them, then he would lead them into this land that he had promised them. As long as the Israelites didn't rebel against the Lord, they had no reason to be afraid of the people that possessed the land. Look at 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If we have the presence of God and the favor of God, then what do we have to be afraid of? Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, There are some things that people can't do, but with God, there's nothing that God cannot do. With God, all things are possible. These folks, Joshua and Caleb, are what I would call glasses half full people. Same circumstance, two different opinions. One says, No, we can't. Glasses half empty. These two guys say, We absolutely can glasses half full. They were optimistic because they trusted the Lord. Theirs wasn't a blind optimism. It wasn't a fool's optimism. Their optimism was grounded in faith. Faith that God was true. Faith that God's plan would succeed. They trusted the Lord. They were power-oriented thinkers because they trusted an all-powerful God, and they believed in his promises. So we have to decide You and I, we've got to decide. Am I going to be a problem-oriented thinker or am I going to be a power-oriented thinker? Well, before you make your decision, let me introduce you to the last character in the story. And that's God. In every situation, we need to remember that God is the omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Because the reality is, we're going to face giants. I've shared some of them that I'm aware of, there are going to be more giants we face as a church as we move forward. Some that you and I could have never seen coming, 
all right? There are going to be challenges, obstacles, giants in our future. We have two choices we can face or we can, we can make when we're facing those giants. Number one is this. We can turn back and perish in the wilderness, which unfortunately is what the majority, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, the majority of these Israelites ended up doing. The majority completely left God out of the equation. Let me tell you where they first went wrong. Look at verse 27 of chapter 13. How do they describe the land? The land that you, Moses, sent us to. But that's not exactly right, is it? Look back at verse 2. This is the land that the Lord is giving us. What about Moses? Moses was just an instrument. He was telling them what God had already said. But they looked at it, the land Moses, you sent us to, is filled with all these giants. Instead, Joshua and Caleb saying, no, this is the land the Lord's already given us. It's ours because he's given it to us. It's the land the Lord gave us. They forgot God. They left God out of the equation. Let me tell you, let me me just be upfront to the point. If we leave God out of the equation, it doesn't matter what we attempt as a church. We can, attempt, we can do some good stuff. We can have some good ministries. We can, make, we can even, you know, impact some people's lives. We can do good things. But if we attempt anything and it's not God-ordained, then it will not be successful for his kingdom. The question has to be, is it God-ordained? Is he leading us or not? And, you know, we're going to make mistakes from time to time. We're going to get it wrong from time to time. I'm going to get it wrong from time to time. We all will. But the sincere desire of my heart as your pastor is to lead this church into the future that God has for us. Because it doesn't matter what I want. Because what I want won't succeed unless it's what God wants. What we want won't succeed unless it's what God wants. These folks, their mistake was that they left God out of the picture. Here's a warning, Luke 9, 62. Jesus said, anyone who begins to plow a field but keeps looking back is of no use to the kingdom of God. The past is valuable. We can learn things from the past, but you can't stay in the past. You have to move forward. Numbers 14, 22, and 23, we see the judgment that God passes down on these individuals. They leave God out of the equation. They, they follow the 10-man majority. They say, no, we're not moving forward. And here is their sentence. Here's God's judgment. Verse 22, surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt. And he's reminding them, you guys have seen my power on display over and over again. All of you who have seen that in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers. Nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Their judgment was that this land that God had promised them was going to go to their descendants, not them. They wouldn't get to enter it. God said, here it is. I've promised it to you. You see the evidence. You see the fruitfulness, land flowing with milk and honey. They said, no, we can't defeat the giants. And God said, okay, you can have it your way. They turned back and they would perish in the wilderness. All of them. That was their destiny. That's one choice. If you ask me, it's not the the best choice. It's not a good choice. Thankfully, we have another choice. Number two, we can trust God and we can possess the land. 
We can either turn back or perish, or we can keep moving forward. We can trust God, and we can possess the land that he has for us. In 1971, Ray Tomlinson, a name I'd never heard of, invented something that you and I use every day. He was studying how computers could interact with each other. And in 1971, he sent a message through a network to another computer. That was the first email ever sent. Now, how many of us use email every day? Countless times. Some of us wish we didn't use email, don't we? Especially when you come back from Christmas vacation, you got thousands of emails you got to wade through. Did you know that in 2018, most recent numbers I could find, in 2018, there were 124.5 billion emails sent per day on average. 124.5 billion emails sent per day. It's one of the, the most used communication tools there is now. 1971, one guy sent a message. Now, some of those emails contain things that we absolutely need, right? Messages from friends, business-related information we need. But some of those messages contain things we don't want. Viruses, phishing, scams. The question is, rule of thumb when opening an email is, do you trust the sender, right? That's got to be the question. If you don't trust the sender, don't open it. Delete it. Get rid of it. Well, God has sent, among other things, has sent a pretty important message to us through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a message of salvation, a message of hope, a message of purpose, future, eternity. The question is, do we trust the sender enough to open that message, to receive that message? The message of salvation and then the message of his plan and purpose for our lives, individually and corporately. The message is a vital message that we don't want to delete but we have to make that, that choice to click, receive. We've got to open it. And we've got to receive his plan for our lives. With the nation of Israel, the majority gave their answer. And it was the wrong answer. What's our answer going to be? Everyone except Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb looked at the same circumstances, saw the same facts as others, but they chose to look at those circumstances from the perspective of faith instead of unbelief, and that's what made all the difference. These two would see the land. They would ultimately possess what God had promised because they trusted in the Lord. Joshua, his name, and again, Caleb touched on this last week, his very name represents faith. I mean, his Hebrew name, Hosea, means salvation. Moses gives him the name Yehoshua, which means the Lord, is, the Lord saves. And the whole idea there is that at the right time, God's going to save. And for him, his life, he looked at this, this promised land, and he knew, yeah, these guys are big, but when we go into the land at just the right time, God's going to show up, and he's going to provide. The Lord will save us. That was their perspective. Same circumstances, different perspectives. One from unbelief, one from faith. God will save. He will save us. Psalm 910, it reminds me of Psalm 910. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. You could say that was Joshua and Caleb's motto, right? If we trust you, you will not forsake us. If God is for us, then who can be against us? That was the way that they lived. Their specific faith in the Lord's presence and favor with his people is what drove Joshua and Caleb's interpretation of the facts in front of them. Think about this. In this story, the difference between the majority and the minority, the difference between the majority and the minority, the reports was simply that the minority, Joshua and Caleb, included God in their calculation. 
That was the only difference. The majority left God out of the equation. The minority, Joshua and Caleb, included them. Psalm 37, verses 7 through 9 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in this way. Because of the men who carry out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Joshua and Caleb knew the truth that you and I need to know. God would inevitably, will inevitably overcome, and he will fulfill his purposes. Whether we choose to be a part of that or not, God will fulfill his plan for his kingdom on this earth and in heaven. His plan will be fulfilled. We need to make a decision as to whether or not we'll be a part of that. The same God that rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, that parted the Red Sea, that, that ultimately led them into the promised land, that same God has a future in store for us and has promised that if we will be faithful, he will bless what we do for him, that we can possess the land that he's given us. Giants may seem pretty big from the perspective of the shrimps, but when compared to the power of Almighty God, they look like shrimps themselves. There's nothing that God can't do if it's he who is doing it. If we trust in him, if we follow him, then in his terms of measuring, we will not fail. may not be success in human terms, but it will be in kingdom terms. And if we fear God, then we have no reason to fear anything or anyone in this world, in this life. General Eisenhower, 34th President of the United States, but before that he was the Supreme Allied Commander in World War II. He, planning for D-Day, took a year, over a year. Got to the time to implement the plan. They battled weather conditions. Other situations challenged them. But they finally decided on June the 6th, 1944. And before the invasion began, Eisenhower, he, he summed up the mission by saying this. He said, you are about to embark on the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. At another time, another point, he's overlooking Malta Harbor. He sees ships full of soldiers, planes flying overhead. He was moved. He stood at attention. He saluted his troops, and then he said this. Very similar sentiment. He said, there comes a time when you've used your brains, your training, your technical skill, the dies cast, the events are now in the hands of God, and there you have to leave them. Our future as a church is in God's hands. My future, my wife, my kids, my family is in God's hands. He's in control. It's up to him as to which way it goes. His purposes will be fulfilled. The future, the purpose that he's given us to live our lives is set. I mean, he's given us a purpose If we choose to focus on the obstacles, only on the obstacles, then we'll never experience that plan that he has for us. But if we choose to focus on Christ, to trust in him, then there's no limit to what he can do in and through us. You think about what God has provided. We can can look at life through the lens of, of, of human reasoning, or we can learn to look at life through the eyes of faith just as Joshua and Caleb did, because the eyes of faith realize that this world is not 
reality is not accurately seen in terms of human reasoning. The eye of faith sees what's here but believes what God has said and what God says is possible. It believes that the God who sent his son to die for you, who gives us victory over sin, death, and any challenge that life can bring, is the same God who's promised to deliver you through this life and into eternity. And and, and the eye of faith realizes that if I have Jesus Christ who has provided salvation and hope and assurance and eternity, that there's nothing in this world that I have to be afraid of. That even death itself has no hold on me. That I don't have to be afraid of death. The greatest thing that we have to fear in life, there's no fear there because Jesus has given us victory over death. The eye of faith realizes that if we trust the Lord and we believe his promises, then we don't have to fear. Unbelief is the only thing that will block us experiencing the future that God has for us. So the question that we have have to ask is how will we we respond to the opportunities that God has given us? I can't wait. I mean, over this past year, I've seen God do things that have amazed me. I can't wait to see what the future holds. What will we do? How will we respond to the opportunities that God is giving us? And we'll explore more of that in the coming weeks. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of salvation that you have provided so graciously through your son, Jesus Christ, and the opportunities that you give us from day to day, each day, to serve you. The greatest opportunity that you've given is the opportunity to be a part of your family, to be saved. And that's possible, Jesus, because of your, your, your sacrifice on the cross, your death, your burial, your resurrection. And I, I've I believe that, that possibly maybe there's somebody here today who have, that's not taking advantage of that opportunity. And that's the most important decision that they will ever make, whether or not they'll receive the gift of salvation that you provide, that you offer. And if there is somebody here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would accept, that they would come during this time of commitment and let me share with them how to accept that gift. For, for us as a church family, for the rest of us who know you and trust you, Lord, I pray that we would spend this next week, this time of commitment, but this next week as we, we move into this new year, this series, as we look at what you are doing in the life of this church, I pray that we would spend time in prayer and in your word focused on you and that we would be determined to trust you and to follow you wherever you lead us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that you give. I pray that we would take advantage of them and that, 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 that our lives would be lives of faith, lived for you. The sermon of our life would be a sermon of faith and trust and confidence and service for you. Lord, I pray that we would just respond to your word however you lead in this time of commitment. For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?